You're listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. I'm your host, Kieran Pedley. So in the first podcast we've done for a little while, we're going to be talking about our latest uh, political monitor release, where we've looked at voting intention preferences, of course, um, perceptions of the different party leaders and uh, perceptions of the government and leading members of the government's handling of the COVID pandemic. There's also a deep dive on Labour leader Keir Starmer, um, what do the public think of him? Some specifics around his style of leadership and uh, what people think of the direction that he's taking the Labour Party in, but also is he seen as a Prime Minister in waiting. So lots of numbers to get through today. And I was joined on the podcast by Paula Surridge, uh, Deputy Director at UK in a Changing Europe and also Political Sociologist at the University of Bristol, and Stephen Bush, the Political Editor of The New Statesman. And here is that conversation. <laughs> So I'm here with Paula Surridge and Stephen Bush. Uh, a big welcome to you both. Um, Paula, I'll come to you first uh, with some of our voting intention numbers, if that's okay. So um, our latest political monitor was out this week. Uh, Fieldwork was taken most of last week. And we had the Conservatives on 42, Labour 38. Um, so that's uh, instead of the, the two main parties being neck and neck in our most recent poll in December. So in January, we've got a four-point Conservative lead. And the number that stood out for a lot of people was was the Green Party being, the Greens being on eight, um, Lib Dems on seven, and then the others make up the rest. But of course, we know the SNP in Scotland is a, you know, a completely different beast, but we're talking about a, a, a GB poll here. So I just wanted to get your impressions initially um, on just the state of the main parties and, and what you think of that Green number. So the, the state of the main parties is in some respects both fascinating and really dull because it doesn't seem to have changed very much at all over the last few months. I mean, I know you've got notionally this four point lead, but if you were to kind of plot a line at around about the 40% each level for the last six months or so, it more or less captures what's going on with the main parties. And maybe we can come back to why that's the case. Um, but it did set up this kind of fascinating figure for the Greens and particularly for setting a narrative ahead of of local elections where it looks like there might end up being quite a fascinating battle between the, the Lib Dems and the Greens for third place. But one of the things when I looked into the tables of the data a bit more closely that really struck me was that it wasn't a concentration of the Green vote in the groups you might expect normally. So um, I saw Owen Jones had written a piece this morning about neglecting young voters, but actually that, that Green share isn't particularly concentrated in the youngest voters. It's slightly higher obviously on small cross breaks and the usual disclaimers applying, uh, but it's slightly higher in the 25 to 34 group and the 55 to 64 group than it is in the 18 to 24 group. Um, so I think it's something to keep an eye on, um, but not necessarily to read it simplistically as being about younger voters. I must say, like, having worked in polling for such a long time, um, I'm almost sort of conditioned to sort of browbeat myself into thinking that almost any shift doesn't really matter. And and like, uh, so the Greens are on eight this month, but you know maybe maybe it's a little bit of a uh, a blip or something. And actually, next month they'll be on six or five. Um, but at the same time, that you know, d thinking of things that way can sometimes uh, stop you from actually looking at things that are significant and, and taking them in. Um, Stephen, you've written about this yesterday. Uh, I just wondered what your thoughts were. I've read the piece, but maybe some people listening haven't. Um, what, what's your thought of the Greens first? We'll talk about the Tories and Labour in a minute. Well, so on the Greens, I mean, 
I'm going to use a shameful phrase that we love to use in journalism, which is a good peg, right? Now, do I think that probably the Greens being on 8% is statistical noise around the fact that they're sort of resting what you might call peacetime level, right? When then there's when people are not in an electiony frame of mood and you just phone them up or you're doing an internet panel or you're doing any kind of survey and you go, how are you going to vote for? The resting level of people who go green is clearly sitting somewhere between 4 to 8%. But... That's in of itself really interesting. Um, yeah, that's now. It's not clear. Um, yeah, because we we don't we we don't we don't know enough. Um, I think uh, think think about both. Yeah. So the the resting level of the Green Party has basically been in that four to eight percent zone since uh, May of twenty nineteen. It obviously then went right back down to what we think of as the normal Green Party level uh, in the election itself. And now it's back up in the four to eight percent zone. And. Uh, yeah, I just do think it, that's really interesting, not least because one, as Paula says, right, this this idea that. Um, well, it's odd because in the Corbyn era, um, when um, when, you know, Jews of a left wing disposition would 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 meet to discuss and go on about how awful things were this this kind of thing that you would sort of semi delude yourself into thinking even though you knew mathematically this couldn't be the case is like well that bump in the greens is about people who have sympathy with us who are also left-wing who are expressing themselves in the way we plan to express ourselves which you look at the data and you know that wasn't really true but it was a nice uh, a nice thought in times which felt particularly dark now the fascinating thing is that um we once again have a situation where the Green Party is regularly polling between 4 to 8%. And uh, a different group of people on the left are going, oh, well, it's a nice thought to imagine than, than what's going on here is that these people broadly agree with my feelings about the direction of the Labour Party. But the the known unknown is, are one, are these the same people as the ones who were kind of going on holiday from the Green Party uh, in the polls last, uh, yeah, from the other parties last time? And two, actually, as Paula says, right, the, that green shirt does not look like a distinct Labour problem. It actually looks a lot more like the sort of classical uh, Lib Dem coalition. And if you think back to the 2019 locals, when, yes, the Liberal Democrats did very well, but the Green Party also did very well. Um, what I just found really interesting about it is I looked at that and I thought, oh, I feel I've seen this voter distribution before. Right. That is, you know, that looks like something which if it's well organised, which has traditionally been a problem the Green Party has struggled with. But if it's well organised and it campaigns in the right places in the right ways, can both, you know, win council seats around here in Stoke Newington and council seats in, you know, leafy county councils and a conservative dominant at dominated and eventually win parliamentary seats from both parties. And that to me, I thought was the interesting thing about that, that resting level. And, um, and yeah, although I don't think the 8% itself is meaningful, I think it's a good, a good peg to talk about what is, I think, quite an important story. I mean, we could go off on I, a... Sorry, go on, Paula, go on. So I was just going to say, actually, I, I picked up the same thing looking at the tables. That one, of the, one of the notes that I wrote to myself was, this looks like the Lib Dem vote. Mm. Um, and it's there in the education breaks that you've got in the crosstabs as well, that this is a vote that's highly concentrated amongst those with higher education qualifications. Um, and I thought, you know, agreeing, agreeing with what Stephen said, there's a, there's a space there for a kind of none of the above party that the Lib Dems stopped stop being able to fill after the coalition government and maybe the greens are starting to pick up a little bit of that now as well i mean one of the things i wondered and 
so to compare the Greens to the Brexit Party, you'll have to bear with me. But I, I wonder whether in this sort of, with some younger voters or with voters generally, that the brand of the Green Party as that kind of alternative party of the left or that none of the above party or whatever you want, whatever you want to call it, um, may be a bit easier for people to latch on to um, than the Liberal Democrats, who are obviously struggling for an identity, I think, in this modern era of politics, just since the coalition, they've been they've been struggling a fair bit. Whereas we know that um, from our Ipsos Mori Issues Index that concern about issues of the environment and climate change are at levels that, yeah, at pretty high levels compared to the past. And uh, it's quite easy to understand shorthand what you think what you think the Green Party stands for, isn't it? Even if you uh, maybe you haven't sat down and read through their manifestos or all their policies necessarily. So I wonder if they might benefit from a a clearer brand identity than maybe the Lib Dems have. But I guess we'll have to wait and see whether those votes actually materialise in the local elections and in, in, in real elections to come. Um, Scotland's worth watching, of course, as well, although the big story there will be the SNP. Um, let's move on to the, the two main parties then. So um, we've got the Conservatives four points ahead, but I think it's fair to say that if you look at polling in the round, the two main parties are pretty pretty much neck and neck. You could argue that there might be an ever so slight conservative lead, um, but it's not uncommon to see anything from a slight Labour lead to a, a slight conservative lead. Um, Paula, do you think the do you think the government? I mean, who, who, do you think the government will be happy with that at this stage of a parliament? Because, I mean, in an election where the two main parties were neck and neck on the the popular vote, if you want to call it that, it would get very unclear quite quickly about what that means in terms of seats but at the same time we're almost a year into a pandemic and we'll come on to some of those numbers in a moment um so the fact that they're not significantly underwater might be some cheer for the conservatives i think so i think they do look like quite good numbers for the conservatives given the kind of um direction that things seem to be moving in, in the polling last autumn so that we had this kind of described as the the rally around the flag effect where the ratings um, went up quite a lot at the start of the pandemic then during september october time seemed to be falling down again and, and coming back down and now they seem to have risen back up again um i know there's you know talk of the idea of a of a bounce as the vaccine roll it gets gets rolled out um, and there does seem to be a sense now that people are more content with how the pandemic is being handled now than they were a few months ago um, and that I think I think the Conservatives will probably be quite quite happy to be in that position. Before I bring Stephen in let's let's put some numbers to that then so we we, we, we track sort of attitudes to how the pandemic's being um, handled over time and um, you're quite right Paula back in sort of September 2020 we had 50% saying that it was being handled badly and 32% saying it was being handled well um, things have improved slightly since then, so that's a sort of minus 18 uh, score. Now, 46% of the public think the pandemic is being handled badly, and 38% think it's being handled well. So it's still negative, but uh, but minus, minus 8. But then when we ask about the vaccine, eight, almost 8 in 10 think the government are doing a good job of getting the vaccine out uh, to people as soon as possible. And so I suppose there might be uh, some more optimism as a result of that, although we haven't seen a significant uplift in the in how the government's handling the pandemic overall. Um, Stephen, what do you make of the Conservatives' situation and, and just some of these numbers around the handling of, of the coronavirus pandemic? It seems like whilst more of the public think the government are doing badly than well, it's not exactly uh, the case that people overwhelmingly think the government are doing badly. Yeah, so, so I have pretty divergent opinion from it. Feel most people 
in yeah in or in or covering politics, which is that I actually think these numbers are pretty bad when you like so so that's let's actually zoom out from the question of at this point in a parliament because usually at this point in the parliament there's not a global pandemic and let's look across at countries which have also handled the pandemic quite badly i let's start picking other western european nations at random now do i think the british government's handling of the pandemic has been worse than the dutch government's i mean yeah a bit but not the amount than the so you know the vvd which is the the largest party in the ruling coalition has a double-digit lead on its nearest competitor, the parties in office, including, you know, the traditional coalition parties, which we would expect to be, you know, having the pip squeezed right now, as usually happens, are pretty buoyant. The overall um, support for the for the ruling coalition is pretty high. Ditto. Um, yes, Germany had some success with test and trace, but also has had many of the typical problems of a Western European nation responding to this pandemic. And the CDU's polling is pretty robust. Now, I and I, I and I also think, and although obviously one of the problems is, yeah, the United States didn't spend anywhere near enough money on academic research into politics, so we and so we have much worse data than we have in other other countries. But you can you can make I think a plausible case that Donald Trump actually probably did better as a result of the pandemic and probably did have some benefit from that rally to the flag as well, and. I, so I therefore think that probably the, the, the rally has not unwound. It hasn't fully unwound here. It clearly hasn't unwound everywhere else in Europe. Now, obviously, if you are um, a German opposition party in the context of an election at the end of this year, you have to win. That's not particularly comforting. Ditto if you're a Dutch opposition party in the context of an election and an election campaign is ongoing. That's not particularly helpful to you. But... I think if I were the Conservative Party, right, and in the week in which, um, yeah, one, yeah, looking at the various focus groups where people broadly do seem to see the vaccine as a success for the United Kingdom and for research science rather than one specifically than, than is, lies in the hands of any particular party, I would actually be quite worried that at the point when no one else's bounce has unwound and I have done something undeniably right in the vaccine rollout, A, is a success, B, the the one dose strategy does seem to be, be working and to be therefore saving lives that I would still, okay. in, a, in another pollster, but I was still in other pollsters only drawing on the best prime minister question. Um, I mean, that is as badly as Theresa May was doing vis-a-vis -vis Jeremy Corbyn, Corbyn during the week of the Grenfell tower disaster. I just don't, yeah, I, I guess I still don't think that these numbers look great because I do kind of assume that, um, the, 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 the rally to incumbents worldwide has not unwound. Therefore, our incumbent probably is getting some benefit from that. Therefore, I, I think there is there's probably, you know, probably bottom in, in still to be found in the Conservative vote share. I'm dubious of vaccine bounces. I mean, we're ultimately still the country that, um, you know, responded to the IRA murdering Anthony Gow by electing the Lib Dems in the resulting by-election and reacted to victory in Europe by turfing Winston Churchill out before before <laughs> VJ Day. Yeah, I mean, there's just so little evidence than, than, than what we're going to do is turn around and go, oh, yeah, vaccine bounce, particularly not in a way which is enduring and useful to a party which doesn't have to get re-elected until 2024. Paula, what do you make of it? Um, so... I'm I'm a bit puzzled by these numbers in some ways because 
they look very stable. And yet I, I know underneath all that, there's such a lot of churn going on and voters are still quite volatile. And so I do think it's quite unpredictable, really, where this might end up later um, and that we could be sort of lulled into a bit of a false sense of security of where these numbers are when actually there's still a lot in there that, that could lead to some quite volatile outcomes. Once people are really directing their thoughts back to politics and away from the pandemic and being at home with their children and all the other things that people are thinking about at the moment. Um, so I think we don't really know where this is going to end up. Um, maybe we'll get a taster of that from the local elections um, and the devolved elections, obviously. Um, but I think there's there's a there's a long way to go. And um, how that's actually going to turn out, I think, is still very uncertain. So when we look at what we think might happen in the future and in some... Yeah. Look, what's the famous phrase, events, dear boy, and all of that. We know that things happen that change the trajectories of parliaments and so on, but leave that to one side. Um, when we look at what might happen in the future, part of it is the government, what people think of Boris Johnson, what they think of how the government have handled the pandemic, and so on and so forth. Um, but obviously part of it's the alternative as well, and, and what people think of the opposition. So I'm going to read out some numbers, uh, maybe the, the case for Starmer, if you like, and the case against, and I just want to get both of your opinions on some of these numbers, because you can interpret them in, in in different ways, I think. There's definitely a spin you can put that's positive towards Starborough, maybe a, a spin that's slightly less positive. So to start with, we asked uh, a, a horse race question, if you like. Um, do you think that Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer would do better at managing Britain's response to the pandemic from now until it's, until it's over? Um, the public preferred Johnson to Starmer 44-27. Um, very similar numbers on hand, who's best to handle Britain's recovery once the pandemic is over, 44-29 uh, in Johnson's favour there. So that's when you're sort of pitting both um, against each other. But of course, these things can change. So we'll, we'll see how this changes over time. But briefly, the, the case for Starber. So obviously Labour have narrowed the gap in voting intention preferences from the 2019 election quite considerably. Uh, just how much is a matter for individual polls, but uh, they've gone from a, a sort of well over double-digit defeat in the popular vote to almost neck and neck. Um, Starmer's satisfaction ratings that we've that we've tracked uh, for leaders of the opposition, back to Thatcher being a, an opposition leader, um, are plus five, which means forty percent satisfied, thirty-five percent dissatisfied. Right. Right. Uh, um, so that's a score of plus five. It has come down, but um, still, that's as good as anybody's had ten months into their. Uh, time as leader of the opposition, apart from Tony Blair. Um, now, again, as an aside, whether you t picking an arbitrary moment with everybody ten months into their leadership is useful, you know, to be debated. But just as a comparison point, ten months in, Starmer is second only to Blair in his leader satisfaction rating, um, and forty-eight percent say that of the public say he's changed Labour for the better, and just four percent say he's changing Labour. For the worse, so, so some good numbers there for, for Starborough. You could construct a, particularly when you look at the headline voting attention figures narrowing, you can construct quite a positive case for his leadership so far. Uh, the case against, if you want to call it that, well, his leader ratings, whilst they are plus five, uh, they were plus thirty-one uh, back last June or so. So they are coming down, and of course we don't know how far they'll go uh, in the future. So whilst I said he's second only to Blair ten months in, um, David Cameron. Who was slightly worse off than Starmer ten months in went on to improve his ratings, and of course the context of the time is very important. So there's a direction of travel issue. So where is the bottom, if you like, and and 
where's where's par um 39 only 39 percent of the public say they know a great deal or a fair amount about him which could be spun either way you could say that's an opportunity to win over the people that maybe don't know a lot about him yet or you could say it's a threat because well if, if a large number of the public don't really know who he is what he stands for maybe maybe someone else will fill in the blanks for him in a negative way um, and one in three, uh, just one in three of the public think he's ready to be prime minister. Now, of course, uh, less than a year in, you could argue, maybe that's uh, to be expected. But still, I mean, it's still the numbers that he faces today. And perhaps crucially, one in three 2019 Labour voters are dissatisfied with the job he's doing at the moment. So that maybe, maybe speaks to some disenchantment on the left. Although I, I, I'd be very cautious about overreading into that without... Uh, getting a bigger sample of those people and seeing who they are and so on. So the point being is that there's a case for Starbuck and there's a case perhaps against. And, I just want to, and without being too bidery about it, I just want to get each of your opinions on this and maybe we can discuss some of the issues around it for the last sort of five minutes or so. So Stephen, you've looked at the numbers on Starbuck. He's not quite a year in yet. I mean, what do you think he would make of his current situation generally and, and, and some of the numbers around his leadership? I mean, I think he has to be quite pleased right so I, I think so i think there is a good a good case to be short starmer but i don't think i don't think you can make it with the available data i think if one has a if it, a solely data-led case has to go okay you'd ideally have both but would you rather have would you rather be in the kind of zone somewhere between cameron and blair um a zone which no leader of the opposition has lost from at this point in time, or would you rather have the notoriously unreliable in midterm um, index of voting intention? I just don't think any opposition leader um, would have to think very long about the the answer, right? As we've seen in a, you know, politics is getting more volatile. Voters are behaving, you know, are much more willing to swing, but but actually throughout it all leadership approval has really, really mattered. Um, not least when there was all of that volatility in 2017, it was the one universal indicator. The polls which got the voting intention wrong did get the fact that there were big shifts in perceptions of Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn um, right. I, I guess for me, the, the thing that would worry me and keep me awake at night if I were Keir Starmer is how much of that I think very real advantage is highly Boris contingent, right? You know, Everything he's done, well, so everything he's had two things. One is not to do, not to be seen to be doing too much politics in a time when people don't like that kind of thing. Now, personally, of course, I think the idea that Keir Starmer hasn't done a lot of politics this year is nonsense. But, you know, he's, he's, he's managed that as well as I think someone could, could have done. But the other is basically to go, I am the anti this guy. You know, I have a brief. I'm on top of it. He's a bit shambolic. Yeah, like, I'm very respectable. I'm very solid. Right. And. I think that comparison works for him. I'm yet to, if I were Keir Starmer, I would look at the things voters preferred me to Boris Johnson on. I would look at that lead, uh, yeah, the lead I have with some pollsters, and I would go, what is the question I'm asking of the Conservative Party to which any of Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid, Jeremy Hunt um, are not also the answer? So I guess that would be my kind of where I would be if I were Keir Starmer. I agree with most of that, but I think there's a, another element to this to, to play in as well. And this is a problem for opposition leaders all the time, is, is the fact that 
the person that is the prime minister is much easier to imagine as the prime minister because you see them as the prime minister all the time. And that's kind of massively enhanced at the moment when you ask questions about who's best to handle the coronavirus crisis. People are seeing uh, Boris Johnson on their televisions handling the, the coronavirus crisis regularly. And they're not seeing Keir Starmer. I mean, even when there are briefings put out, they don't have the same kind of reach. And I think the fact that he's still, um, you know, more or less unknown by a majority of the population is um, not necessarily a terrible thing, because it means that when you get to campaigning, you've got a chance during a campaign to make that kind of first impression um, with voters that they haven't already um, they haven't already formed. So I think there's lots of opportunity there. And the upcoming um, local and devolved elections will be um, a first opportunity, if you like, for, for voters to see Starmer, for many voters to see, see Starmer at all. Um, but I think also the other thing that I think that I think um, the, the Boris Johnson factor, there's a bit of a double edged sword. So you've got that kind of competence argument that that Stephen was talking about there. But there is also a group of voters that were connected to the Conservative Party by Boris Johnson. And the other people that you're talking about replacing and being more competent might not have that same appeal in some of those in some of those groups. So I think there's, a, there's two different factors moving in different directions there. And those groups, I, I, again, I was looking at the, the cross breaks, those groups where um, they're at the moment still very um, pro Boris Johnson as prime minister. They're also the groups where they're the most likely to say they know nothing or very little about Keir Starmer. So there's definitely an opportunity there amongst some of those groups still for Starmer to make that that all important first impression. I mean, there's a whole wider conversation we could have, which we won't have time to go into today about the obviously the structural challenges Labour face in trying to form some sort of administration um, after the next election, even if you concede that a majority administration seems virtually impossible, um, famous last words, but um, and it would be some sort of minority government with, with support from other parties. And then you've got the question of Scottish independence. So there's a, there's a lot there's a lot else that you could talk about when you're trying to assess Labour's position. But let's just let's just keep it uh, to just generally Starmer and Labour for the last couple of minutes. Um, one of the trends, one of the trend points of data we have is a question that we ask whether people agree or disagree that Labour is ready to form the next government. And again, leaving aside whether you'd expect that to be answered in the affirmative less than a year into Starmer's leadership, I did think some of the numbers here were quite interesting. So we have 32% agree that Labour are ready to form the next government, 43% disagree, uh, and the rest, you know, neutral or don't know. Um, why is that interesting? Well, the 32% that agree kind of hasn't really moved in the last decade. So um, uh, Keir Starmer had 29% agree in August 2020. Under Jeremy Corbyn, we asked that question four times. We had numbers like 32, 27, 30, 27. So, I mean, Corbyn did get as high as 32 as well. Miliband had 33, 23, 35, 29, 31. So this wasn't a question we were asking every month or anything. But anyway, the point is that like this, the number for Labour of 32 at the moment really is no different to May 2011 when under Miliband uh, the number was 31. What's slightly different is the number that disagree. So that 43% that disagree is considerably less than uh, the lowest number disagreeing Corbyn had, which was a 59% disagreeing. 
Um, and the lowest number Ed Miliband had for disagreeing was 52. So there's something going on here where maybe the public are becoming less hostile to the, to the idea of Labour being a government, but they haven't quite made the jump to thinking that they actually affirmatively are. Um, I don't, I'm always a bit loath to compare to Tony Blair as a moment in time, but it is, it, he is the last Labour leader to win from opposition. For, for comparison purposes, in April 97, you had 55% of the public agreeing that Labour were ready to form the next government, 33% disagreeing. And it was actually higher in, the, in 1994, just after Blair took over, it was 66% agreed. So look, a, a moment in time, I, I, don't, I don't dispute that for, for a second. Um, but there definitely does seem to be something in the data that, that suggests Labour, people are less hostile to the idea of a Labour government, but they haven't sort of gone quite fully positive about it. So I suppose, last couple of words from each of you. Um, I'll come to you, Stephen, first, then the last word to Paula. I mean, what, what, it's quite a broad exam question, to be fair, but what is it Labour has to do to try and move some of those people that maybe are less hostile now to be uh, more off, off, off the fence, if you like, on that question? It's a really good question, because... Um, so this is going to be a horrendously Blairite answer. I think one of the things in a lot of the commentary and most people in, I'm going to use the word Westminster as a very broad sense, by which I mean people who follow politics closely in commentary. I think people have kind of forgotten how scared quite a lot of people were of not actually just only of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, but of Ed Miliband's Labour Party. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I um, have a particular insight into why that was, and I'm not saying I, I necessarily agree with it, but but um but people did fear a Labour government in, a, in, in large parts of the country, and it was a crucial part of how the Conservatives won their majority in 2015, and a crucial part of the various things that happened in both the elections of 2017 and 2019. I therefore do kind of think that probably actually, despite the fact that the MP is getting a bit bored of it, despite the fact that journalists are going, oh, you know, it's, it's not the right approach. Just as Cameron did still need to, even though a year into his leadership we were all right and we were tired of the Huskies and what whatnot, did have to keep doing the sort of like, don't worry, I don't hate modern Britain, Britain and its social values anymore kind of shtick. I do think the most important thing in terms of getting those numbers up is to continue to do the labour reassuring labor are competent not least because i think paul's exactly right about the campaign effect right which is the the moment to introduce labor's program where you know the key problem labor had in 2017 and 2019 was wasn't just wasn't was actually then the policies people agreed with them but they did not believe the labor party could do them and i think that competence and reassurance is the thing that they need to continue to sort of kind of yeah almost like gently gently massage the electorate with their their reassuringness while you know using things like foi and urgent questions and parliamentary research to do the kind of government incompetence attack line but i think that is i basically think until what the winter of 2024 um yes yeah, so january 2024 they really do need to be all reassurance all the time paula final word to you i i pretty much agree with with Stephen there that it is at this point it is about um reassurance letting people think that you are on their side that you agree with similar things to the things that they agree with and i know you know we've had this whole endless debate about flags for the last 10 days but it's those more ephemeral things that labor needs to focus on at the moment because it's about giving getting getting a fair hearing 
with voters when they do eventually come out with policies. There's no point having a whole raft of policies now for people to argue about for four years and have all the negatives of that in 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 the spotlight. So so I largely agree. I think broadly what Labour have been doing are the right sort of things. Um, moving away from what are seen in the in by parts of the public as more extreme positions and being reassuring many of the voters that labor lost between 2017 and 2019 um were those that were not quite as far to the left on some of these policies not to the right not even for many of them actually as far as the center but they just weren't quite as left-wing on many of these issues as they perceived um a corbyn government would be and i think that that constant reassurance and slightly repositioning yourself um is going to eventually pay off in terms of people being willing to listen certainly plenty of time to go in this parliament to, to find out paula surridge and stephen bush thank you very much for your time that was the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. A big thanks once again to my guests, Paula Surridge and Stephen Bush. Um, lots of insightful comments there. One of those where you could have gone on for hours talking about the different permutations of different situations and what happens uh, between now and the rest of the parliament. Um, we barely got into some of the, the other huge issues like Scottish independence and uh, um, and what, what the sort of economic fallout from the pandemic might be, might be and how that might affect uh, politics in the near to longer term. But of course, there's only so much you can get into in, in 30 minutes or so. And those topics will be unpicked in more detail, no doubt, in other podcasts. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please like the podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcast app, podcast apps. Um, it will be available on the um, Ipsos Mori Politics and Society app, but also uh, the Polling Matters um, podcast feed uh, for the foreseeable future as well too. So if you keep subscribed to both of those, um, you should get some more podcasts in the near future. We haven't done many for a little while, but um, we're planning on changing that. So do uh, stay subscribed and stay tuned. But for now, thanks for listening and have a good week.